0: Again, the site is patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. You can also find the link in the podcast notes. Enjoy the podcast. Okay, I think it's recording.
1: Yeah. Hi, Alexia. That's it.
0: That's it here. Okay, uh, so I, we're doing the podcast today with Alexia Allen. Uh, I think the last time we recorded a podcast may have been something like seven years ago. Wow. And and I'm not sure, but I think that the video that I have with you of the respectful chicken harvest, I, I'm not sure, that might be 10 years old now. Wow. Yeah, I know. Wow indeed. And, uh,
1: and I think,
0: uh, uh, I mean, let's start, let's start with that video. Um, has that worked out okay for you? I mean, I know I delete something hateful from that video about three or four times a week. Wow. Yeah, it's, I think it's had well over a million views now. hmm So is it, has it been a thing? Has it, because of the, the ugliness that I believe, I mean, there's also, I think you had about 40 marriage proposals on that same video. hmm um, So it seems like there's upsides and downsides, but I do think it's a negative video, and I'm so glad that I have it in my collection. It might be, like, in the, my top five all-time videos.
2: Kind of amazing. I remember filming it. Now, of course, I look back and think, oh, yeah, I've learned a few things. I have a a slightly different gutting technique now. (laughs) Um, And I've also gotten a number of death threats um, over the years from that, which has been a little tough to metabolize. But I've also had somebody come up to me in the grocery store and say, hey, you're a You're the chicken lady or people who come to my farm and say, oh, my gosh, I'm finally putting it together. You're the Alexia Allen (laughs) (laughs) of Hawthorne Farm. This is amazing. I had someone from Scotland, I think, um, interview me for a radio show that she was doing. And the most tangible reward is that I had somebody send me a big box of goat milk soap. Really nice goat milk soap because she said the video had helped her so much in processing her old birds. So yes, I'm kind of amazing that that would be my 15 minutes of fame is for a chicken processing video and when I was an angry teenage vegan I, uh, would not have believed that was possible but there you go and it's thanks to you Paul.
0: Oh, I'm glad, I'm glad I could help. Um, the people that are sending you the death threats, they are sending you the death threats because they think that all people everywhere should be vegan. Does that sound about right?
2: I think so. Um, and it's been a little, it's, I, I, I guess so. There's there's something about it. And I was a vegan for 10 years. I'm all about people eating according to their ethics. That's fantastic. Like, people should eat according to their own ethics. Um. I'm on board with that. My mom is a vegan. Uh, she says she prays daily for my conversion, but she isn't overbearing about it. When she comes to the farm, she's like, okay, this goat cheese is just amazing. Yes, I'm going <laughs> to eat some goat cheese when I'm here. So there's kind of a way to be uh, plant-based without being overbearing about it. And I also do goat milking classes and have had people uh, write to me saying, you know, how dare you exploit these animals this way. And I can't say they're wrong. I mean, looked out from that perspective, yes, it is really weird this whole domestication thing that people do. Uh it's pretty weird any way you slice it, but I'm also pretty sure that my goats are happy. Yeah. <laughs> and like Pumpkin gets up on her milking stand and scrabbles around in excitement for me to come milk her, like, come on, milk me, milk me Uh so I don't know. I it's it's a weird conundrum and I'm just doing my best to live on the solar power that falls on the land. And the goats and the animals are a good way to do that right here at this latitude.
0: So I, I feel a powerful urge to explore this little tidbit a little bit more because I kind of feel like of, of all the monsters in the world that, um, To have you painted as a monster to these, by these people, by their standards, seems, uh, like it's, it's more a statement of the people doing the pointing than you, the person that they're, that they are pointing at. And so of course yes, it is a difference of value set, a difference of standards. The, the thing that, that bugs me is that their message basically is, is that nobody should ever kill any living thing. Therefore, uh because you've killed a thing, I need to kill you. And it's kinda like, what? You're uh that then how does that work afterwards? Do you kill yourself after that because you didn't kill the living thing? How does this work? What is what is the logical path here? So I I just kind of feel like okay 'Cause there's a lot of vegans that will allow others to be uh not vegans. Um, and uh and then of course there's the vegans that feel like everybody should be vegans, and then the ones that are kinda like a little beyond that, which is what we're talking about now, like you must die because something died at your hands. And so right,
1: wow. I just it's it's it kinda
0: seems to me like, you know, these are people that are standing up and waving their hand wildly to say I'm really stupid. I just need you to know that. And so, of course, you're too kind to come to this conclusion that
1: I've come to. (laughs) (laughs) Look
2: at me, I'm stupid. (laughs) I have gotten indignant because I think, wow, I mean, in terms of animal suffering, I am really small potatoes in this whole thing. The way most commercial meat is raised is, of course, totally abhorrent and inhumane and unhealthy for everybody involved. Uh, I am, I think, you know, commercial meat is pretty dreadful, and the way we do it here is a little more integrated into the ecosystem. And could we do it differently? And could we eat less meat? Um, yes, all these things are true. We import a fair amount of food for our animals, and if we weren't buying rabbit pellets to supplement our rabbit's diet, if we weren't buying grain for the chicken, yes, our animal protein consumption would drop, but we kind of look towards that, uh, look towards that future and say, how do we create the systems that are so sustainable, um, even in a world where we're not getting animal food? And... Or we're not where we're not importing animal feed onto the farm, so to speak. And how do we have it so that our animals have one bad day? I mean our rabbit keeper is out there gathering fresh salads for all you know, all our dozens of rabbits every day and out there pulling back weeds and making sure that they're okay and, you know, adjusting their waters, um so it's not a terrible life. It is a weird conundrum, this whole domestication thing, like I said. And that goes for plants too. I mean, you know, it's just one big relationship. And on this farm where we are so enmeshed in the ecosystems, it becomes more apparent. And the death that is necessary to sustain life becomes more apparent. I'm kind of shocked at how being a gardener, I'm actually killing way more than I'm planting and nurturing. I do a lot of weeding. I, you know, make a lot of space. I do a lot of thinning. I've gotten way more ruthless and way more compassionate as I've gone along this journey of eating more and more food that I raise.
0: Now, the last time I was at your place, which I'm going to guess was seven years ago, Mm
2: -hmm. um,
0: then uh, you, not only did you teach classes in foraging, but in your garden, you were encouraging a lot of the edible weeds. And, in fact, I think that there was, you plucked a dandelion leaf that was almost as tall as you. <laughs> uh, I don't know if you recall that. Then you watered yeah. it up and ate it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> so, um, uh, but the, the Im- important thing is, is that when you're saying, like, oh, you're out there, you're, you're plucking weeds, you're killing those those weeds um i'm kind of thinking like okay what's what's on your two pluck list because i'm sure you're leaving a lot of them behind like dandelions are you still leaving dandelions behind
2: mm, most places we just pulled the dandelion out of the corner of the hoop house today that had those you know foot nice foot long leaves on it um for sure so Yes, I mean again, it's just kind of an ecological mix of what's growing where and what's going to give me the most bang for my buck in terms of calories and nutrition. So there are lots of places where I, I let the lamb quarters, lamb quarters go to seed. And we don't pull all the purslane out of the garden. But depending on what domesticated species I'm growing, it's sometimes, you know, quite obvious that okay, if I want this lettuce to grow here, if I want these beets to grow right here, they can't have purslane and lady's thumb right next to them. They will be bigger, happier beets if I take those weeds out of there, and then I drop those weeds on the ground, or I ferment them, or you know, I do something so that those nu- that those nutrients are staying in the garden. Mm-hmm. But I prefer, I would rather eat a beet than than ladies' thumb, you know, there's some, some other weed that's a little bit, not quite as many calories for the space.
0: Now, um, I want to get into what our what our whole conversation today is going to be about in a mm-hmm. moment. But uh, just real quick, I want to talk about your pizza oven. Now, now you had a you had a fascinating strategy uh, when I talked to you several years ago, where uh, you had a house. And uh, you, uh, instead of living in the house, you rented out all the bedrooms in the house, and then you uh, you had outside you had this pizza oven, and it had uh, the pizza oven had like a little roof over it, and you had cobbled together <laughs> a little sleeping space in that area above the pizza oven, and you were kind of sort of living there. Granted. Very minimalist-esque. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but the key is, is that now the amount of income from the renters was greater than your mortgage and other expenses. And so you were like, I don't know, it just seemed brilliant. You effectively eliminated the need to have a working job. It seems like the time you had a working job, kind of part-time-ish, and um, mm-hmm. it was okay. Uh but of course what you really longed for was to not drive away from your property, but instead develop a symbiotic relationship with your property mm-hmm. and and this strategy did the trick and, and you've since expanded on that. Am I am I close? My what am I saying that's not right? <laughs>
2: No, that sounds about right, and it was really worth that simplicity for me to, okay, I'm just going to roll out my sleeping bag in this little perch under a roof because this is the Northwest, and it's not that, that cold. have a good sleeping bag, and having a good sleeping bag is a lot cheaper than having a whole room in the house. So I'm going to go with this for now, and when I actually you know, did the math. I was paying myself very, very well <laughs> to sleep outside in a place that's comfortable. I love sleeping outside anyways. It actually didn't feel like a hardship. So that was all really, really helpful, totally worthwhile. I think about that, too, when I haul out buckets from our composting toilet system. I'm like, wow, when I think of what it would cost me to install a new septic system, you know, to 60 grand or something like that. I'm actually paying myself very, very well for these, you know, 20 minutes a week of carrying the buckets back and forth. So it has worked out as long as I'm willing to really get to grips with the required simplicity of that. And it's great. I'm a total barnacle. I love being on my farm. This is just my playground, I, there are corners of it that are always new to me. Like, I can go out and ha- spend hours exploring and just strolling around the gardens and seeing what's happening right here. So I am not bored. And it's a great big art project crossword puzzle that's also edible that I happen to live in. And it's a really satisfying feeling. And it strikes the chord with me. I did not grow up farming or gardening or really being exposed to a lot of that, certainly some some traces of it, but um, not as much as I do now, and it's just very clearly been my path, like, this is what I want to do, this is how I'm going to get there, and I've just invested a lot in it, and, you know, sometimes strike up conversations with people at the feed store and realize, oh, my gosh, I do have a fair amount of experience with Raising chickens or with gardening for subsistence for these other things, and I think, wow, okay, yeah, all you've got to do is put every available dollar and minute towards learning about those things for about ten years, and then like it'll feel like it'll feel like I'm getting somewhere. So that has been fun. It's really been a great big focus of my life, and I've had the luxury of of time and energy to do that. A pretty independent minded person, and you know, was able to wrap up my full time job and just dive into the farm scene. It's been good, we eat really well. As one of my farm mates said here a few years ago, we might look like paupers, but we eat like kings. (laughs) (laughs) So that's yeah.
0: Now, you're in an area where the soil is pretty good. I mean, um, there's gonna be. Uh, if, if nobody does anything a jungle will form right there mm-hmm. yeah so it's i I'm just saying that because like where' we're at here in montana it's it's like a, a giant rock um we've got two properties one property is a giant rock the other property has deep soil but it's kind of uh, a lot of sand and stuff and we're trying to still build a kind of a gardener's soil um, mm-hmm. which for you to build a gardener's soil is like oh all you got to do is uh you know, take out all the other... You've got to push back the natural jungle to have a spot where something else can grow for a bit. And uh, if you don't do that, then it's like all the grasses come in and take all the light, and then other things will succeed the grasses, and then it'll be a jungle again. Hmm. I'm getting close, right? That's as...
2: Yes.
0: Kind of like what it's like.
2: I mean, we do have pretty abundant rainfall here, you know, upwards of thirty inches a year. So it's not a very brittle soil like you're like you're dealing with. But soil I've become more and more of a soil geek over the years mm-hmm. and realizing how much my health is tied to the health of the soil I eat from. And I've just observed a little bit, like by no means am I a soil scientist or am I even a very careful observer of what's actually happening. But I did notice that when my husband and I did our entire year of hand-harvested food, which was 2017, I noticed that I I was eating primarily from our land, and I would start getting food cravings or these kind of hunger Bursts of hunger. Like, I'm just going to eat more dried apples because that's all there is. Like, there's something I need, but I'm not getting it from what I'm eating. And we're eating completely, you know, pretty much from our land. Those food cravings would go away when a friend gave me kelp that she had gathered at the ocean. And I ate the kelp, and then I would go a few weeks without any of those hunger cravings, and then they would come back until I ate more kelp. So I thought, wow, there seems to be something in this seaweed that I'm not getting in my diet. Uh, so I just kept looking into it, found Steve Solomon's book, The Intelligent Gardener, about balancing soil minerals, and since following some of that advice in terms of getting my soil tested, kind of checking out where the minerals are, not just adding more and more manure, then I actually feel quite a bit healthier eating from my garden now. And so that was a, that was a big eye-opener to me. Cause I can put any quantity of horse manure on my garden and grow giant beets. And grow giant zucchini. Uh, but will the, will those vegetables actually turn around and keep somebody alive? You know, like be really nutritionally balanced. What do those plants need in order to give me the maximum nutrients? That's a slightly different question than how do I get the biggest zucchini possible. So that's that's where I'm like, well, yes, stuff grows, but it doesn't grow um, the same way all the time. Garden soils, I mean, you know this, Paul, it's like, Garden soils are such a fragile, human-created environment compared to something like a forest or a thicket. And I have my annual gardens around the house, and off in the distance, I can see actually from the window right now, I can see great big prickly green hedgehogs on the chestnut trees. So I'm kind of growing potatoes and squash and barley until those chestnut trees really kick in. And then I'll probably not have to... (laughs) do as much weeding or have a different take on the garden. But, yeah, the soils for annual vegetables just take a lot of work, um, and we have ways to make that work easier and more fun, uh, a whole variety of strategies for that, both in terms of balancing the minerals, in terms of really fun garden parties where we all get together and work on a particular garden, um, you know, ways of managing our compost and the nutrient flows that make it easier. but. I'm not going to lie, like, annual agriculture is is a bit of a treadmill. I know this isn't news to you, but it's uh, really dawning on me as I feed myself and feed more and more people from my land.
0: The important thing I want to highlight in all the stuff you just said is that you had beautiful produce, which you would eat, but you would feel like you're missing something. And then you would fill that void with um, a form of seaweed, mm-hmm. so which was very mineral rich. And then you have since augmented your soils with different kinds of minerals. And now that craving for seaweed sort of thing is no longer there. Am I? Exactly. Okay. Correct. Yeah. Good. Correct. And and so I do have something to say along those lines. I mean, are you, I mean, when I was there seven years ago, it seemed like you were growing a lot of things in polyculture. I mean, you would have some places where it's like, this is where I grow a lot of this. and uh, But it was like infested with a bunch of other stuff too. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like, oh, no, in this area we grow only stinging nettles and nothing else. We don't allow anything else to grow. We pluck it all out. Where we only allow blocks of monocrop, but they're great monocrops, but they're just not. So you were already doing something polyculture esque before. Mm-hmm. And I imagine you're still doing
1: something polyculture esque.
2: Yes. It's <laughs> <laughs> I am a I'm a bigger fan of cleaner cultivation than I was when you were here seven years ago. Part of it is I just have more available people and have gotten better at managing people. (laughs) Maybe just a little bit better, but at least there's kind of more person power to spend that time weeding. I also have horses to help with the cultivation, and that's a huge help. Like, wow, okay, I can actually grow a cover crop effectively and work it in when I have a horse to help me do that. Like she can do in an hour what it would take humans ten hours to do. So I do more team cultivation, but I'm also really realizing that I can't leave bare soil. I do a lot more with cover crops than I did before, and my my patches of a monoculture thing are pretty small, like maybe twenty feet by twenty feet. I've got. Right now, corn growing. My biggest corn patch is maybe 80 feet long by 30 feet wide, and that's multiple varieties of corn. There's some cabbage thrown in in there, and there's some beans thrown in in there, and there's undersown crimson clover and oats. And I'll be planting garlic as soon as the corn comes out. So that's kind of where that that crossword puzzle effect comes in. If I'm asking the weeds to not be there, that puts a lot more work on me to manage that soil. And that's something I'm willing to do in these small patches. There's loads of marvelously, quote-unquote, untended land around the edges of the garden. Like, we kind of just follow this common sense principle. Like, the intensively managed stuff is right here where... I can look out the window and see a garden in every direction. And beyond that is a great big ring of hazelnuts and berries and chestnuts and walnuts and, you know, all the kind of wilder edge stuff and the plums and the nut pines and the raspberries over there at the edges. So it's a good mix and one that I think will serve us well in years to come. And right now when we have enough people who are willing to put in the time and effort to hill potatoes, Great. We'll
0: do that. So now, I remember at your property that it was pretty flat mm-hmm. but I don't remember it being in the floodplain, because in that area that you are, which, by the way, I think that the actual amount of rain that you might get might be greater than 30 inches. I I would guess where you are, where your house is, would be 50.
1: But have you, oh,
2: okay.
1: you measured it say.
2: 40 plus when we've measured it. It's varied a little bit, but yeah. It's yeah. definitely more than 30, like Seattle is more than 30, but we get kind of upwards, we definitely get upwards of that. Which is why I cover my compost piles, and why we have to kind of, you know, be diligent about our nutrient, our leachable nutrients.
0: I know that I lived, uh, not too far away from where you are for a year. And uh, we were getting 60 inches of rain here. Wow. Yeah, and it seems like as you get closer to the Cascade Mountains, the amount of rain you get goes up. So, And then, yeah, Seattle is like 30. Mm-hmm. Um, but, okay, um, I one thing you just said was that you're growing multiple corn varieties together. I take it you are not saving your
2: seed. I am not. Not this year anyways. I, I just know that boy, being a corn breeder is probably more than I'm that I have the actual space for, especially given that I'm I like so many different varieties of corn. You know, I grow two different varieties of popcorn, I grow multiple uh flint corns, um, several I'm trying a flower corn this year, and then we also have a sweet corn patch. So I just know that I'm kind of you know <laughs> I might save seed in an emergency, but it would kind of be anybody's guess. I mean, I certainly right. have more than two hundred plants, and I've kind of been intrigued about like, mm, what you know, what what would that corn look like? But as long as I can get buy seed from from my favorite varieties, I think I'll stick with that.
0: Right. It's it's a little weird trying to eat sweet corn, and there might be some popcorn mixed in that isn't popped yet.
2: <laughs> well, that's another sweet corn patch is way far away okay. from yeah. I'll well, if you're, not, yeah.
0: if you're not keeping the seeds, then and you're just buying new seeds every year, then uh, then yeah, you're gonna be fine. It doesn't matter. Let them all cross pollinate. Who cares? Um, so when you when you said that, I thought I thought oh well, I would I would think that Alexia is saving seeds, but but now it's, okay, I was mistaken. No, you're not. You're not saving. Ooh. So yeah, it seemed like corn would be something where it's like yeah, let's keep these guys far away. <laughs> yeah. It gets, uh there's too much adventure in our corn. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, okay, the The next thing is, is that it sounds like you're still turning your soil, and I, I just want to express, uh, I mean, one of the things you're doing is you're trying to add minerals and you're adding organic matter from the horses and things like that, and, and I just want to express, every time you turn the soil, you lose 30% of your organic matter. Mm-hmm. So if you've got a lovely, rich gardener soil of like let's say it's twelve percent organic matter. I mean it's gardener's gold. And then um you're like, oh I'm gonna I'm gonna turn the soil now for my for reasons. Um then it's like, okay, you just went from twelve to eight. Did I do the did I do the math right? Yeah, I think I did no. No, actually, you went from 12 to 7, uh, no, 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 it's 12 to 8. You're gonna lose 30%. So, anyway, so you went from 12% organic matter down to 8% organic matter. And, and if you till it over and over and over again without adding organic matter back in, then it's gonna get lower and lower and lower and until you basically made something that resembles a dirt like cement and so i mean which of course that's that's not what you want and and i'm i'm thinking you'll never get there because you you're, you're going to mitigate it and do things but of course to have a horse to be able to plow 10 times faster than a person could uh, by themselves then uh uh You want nice, flat land, you know, which which you have. You're kind of in a flat space. But it doesn't... Okay, I know I already asked this, but I can't remember what you said. It does not flood there, correct?
2: It does not flood from any sort of moving water. When we get great big rain events on saturated soil, pretty much the water table is at the surface, like any holes fill up with water, which is why we can't really... Uh, plant fruit trees in holes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, but no, no sort of floodplain from a river.
0: So, that, I mean, the the situation you described makes me think like, oh, oh some culture would be really helpful, which of course it's going to be not a thing that it's like, okay, horse, what your job today is is you're going to plow over the culture. <laughs> right. That's like, no, not going to work. But, uh, but if you do have culture, then um, the things that grow on the culture end up not being as saturated as the other things where the water cools up because it, it's not running off well or running into your existence over it. Yeah. Uh, all right. So I just – those were a couple of things I want to mention. Um, I've, I've got – the odd thing is – the thing that struck me as truly bizarre is I, I did a thing – the other day. So we finished up our Kickstarter and then the, the money was coming from the Kickstarter into my ability to spend it. <clears throat> and of course, every agency involved is like, oh, I I think we need to fondle this money a little bit. because It's a lot of money. And so we've got professional money fondlers here. They're going to fondle it for a while and we'll let you know when we're done, okay? And uh, so it's like uh, we're we're ready to go. We're chomping at the bit. So I did a thing where I put out a, a a notice and I said we want to get going right away. And so I took taken these two things. I made them cheap, and I've also if anybody wants to give me a hundred bucks, I'll I'll give you an hour of consultation. And you were foolish enough to take me up on that offer.
2: <laughs> well, Paul, it's because you had the title. This is this is Paul the Weary. And well, my heart just went out to you because I said, Wow well, wow, I've I've been there. Like the the weariness of these long journeys and of managing these empires, you know, it's uh really such a project, and there have been so many times I've just put my head down on my desk and said, you know, what am I doing? This is, this is nonsense. <laughs> like, I have felt the weariness. That's I've got haven't talked with Paul in a while. Oh, it would be great to hear what he's up to. So, yeah. <laughs> so
0: you put up 100 bucks so we could visit. <laughs> so worth it. So
2: I, I hope not is weary right now.
0: I'm not. The, <laughs> the funds have come in. Now I'm weary from you know putting all the money out to all the different people to make it all work out and happen, and so I'm I'm now it's a different flavor of weary, but uh, uh, now we've got we've got we've we've discovered there is a uh, a maximum number of people to have in the boot camp at one time, and we are at that number now. Um, although there are five people that are here only temporarily, and so soon we will have room in the boot camp again but, um, uh, you know, right, blah, blah, blah. I've got so much to say about all of those things. The big thing is, is that you ponied up the 100 bucks, and I said, I can't imagine what I would have to say that would be of any value to you. And uh, and, and you were very kind, and you said like, oh, no, there's lots of stuff. And so it's like, oh, okay, well, we'll give this a step. But before we get into that, there's there's one more thing about the pizza oven I have a note down here about, and that is that um, your old pizza oven was was built by somebody who I felt was an un, was unkind to Ernie and Erica, and and because I know Ernie and Erica and work with them, they were also unkind to me, and I kind of felt like this was an unkind person. But but of course, you had a very lovely experience with this person because I just said. Uh, uh less than charming things but we don't need to mention this person's name <laughs> but the the when I found out that this person had built this thing for you I was kinda like I don't know I this guy and so um uh, and then through no fault of his even though I want to blame him because he was unkind uh the it it kind of fell apart. And the reason why I found fascinating, and it's also very common. And it's also very common in your area. There's Mm -hmm. extremely little clay in your area. Right. Yes. And so uh, somebody who was said, you know, that were commanded, go and fetch clay. And they came back with something. And all the people there are like, good job and he proceeded to use it as if it were clay
1: but that it
2: still
1: nah. ah oh
2: nah. yeah know your soils right and it was kind of a matter of the blind leading the blind in terms of the whole other person who had come and volunteered to make a bunch of the bricks before anybody showed up to the workshop because they needed to be dry so, yes, silt does not oh. hold up next to a fire the same way clay does. So, I've since soaked out other clay deposits in the area in case we need them. Uh, but, yeah, clay is not that common.
0: Right. And so it, it But in the meantime, you built a new pizza oven. The new pizza oven is lovely. And uh, is there still a sleeping space above the new pizza oven?
2: Um, not officially, no. Now our pizza peel lives up there, and I'm sure we could put a plank up there if needed, but we have lots of other structures on the farm right now. My husband is an amazing builder, like, he just can't help himself, and he just goes around making these incredible, beautiful, well-designed structures uh, using a lot of the wood that's on our place and very cool branch branch wood designs and stuff. So we've got a lot of sweet little buildings so that nobody needs to sleep over the pizza oven anymore. We even got a guest room, so it's it's uh really a whole different kind of human habitat now.
1: Which, by the
0: way, congratulations, you are now a married person. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, and that that happened since I last saw you. Although uh we've I've met your fella uh once at a mm-hmm. whole different event where you weren't even there. And, uh, uh, and then, uh, um, I've, I've got to hear about it many times over the years, but, but now you guys finally did it. You're all married and stuff and, and you're making your own little paradise. And now, now you're back to living in the house because things are that good. Things, you got that much, uh, that, that much room in your life, you know, it's like, oh, no, 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 it's, it's cool now. I can, I can live in the house. It's easy.
2: Yeah. I've got a room and filing cabinets and all sorts of other, you know, all the accoutrements. And especially for anyone listening who's like, oh, wow, the permaculture farm dream. I talk to lots of lots of people who flow through here and say that this is amazing. You know, I want to live just like this. I want to have a little farm like this. And I'm like, hmm, okay, yes. I don't usually try to burst their bubble with all the nitty-gritty stuff. It happens because it is really lovely and I like enjoying that too, but I just, uh, sometimes like to give people who seem too idealistic just that note of caution about, like, well, yes, there are going to be muddy and dirty and unpleasant things that will happen too. So cultivating the personal and community resilience for those kinds of things is really important. That's what's gotten me through, is actually being in this with other people as well. And I feel so lucky to have a husband with similar values in terms of, you know, use of building materials, in terms of how to live, in terms of how to have conversations with people, and that's been tremendously helpful. So, yeah, it's a good team effort. And I did a little homestead consulting, well, actually several hours of homestead consulting for somebody who was really wanting to just shut the gates and have a self-sufficient homestead, uh and not have to leave the property and I said, and I kind of, you know, looked around and I said, well, this has lots of potential, but the amount of work required, it's really not something for one person to do alone. It's just not. There's just going to be times of year where you just have stuff to preserve and you have stuff to harvest. And, you know, typically it's going to go better with multiple people. Um, So that's one of the things that I I sometimes tell people, like this is not really a solo adventure. And even though I'm the one talking to you today, really credit goes to so many people who have helped us over the years. I mean, who have lived here, who have Come and helped out in one way or another. Who've been good ears or good shoulders to cry on with whatever woe was happening at the moment, and then moving on because the earth keeps growing. And I go out and I sit and I observe the farm every day, and I really, really love doing that. And have found so much help and resilience from cultivating the human community on the farm and you know expanding out from the farm as well as observing what the plants are doing, what the animals are doing, what the weather is doing. I say it's all about just calibrating to reality. Like, how well can I actually detect what is actually happening? <laughs> like, that's a lifelong project right there.
0: One of the phrases you just threw out, ever so casually, which I, I kind of feel like could be the title of a book or the foundation for so many, solving so many problems within permaculture stuff is you said community resilience and i've never heard that phrase before but it is it is kind of what really what really it's all about and um and and it actually leads into another thing i wanted to talk to you about which which when we visited a little bit yesterday uh this kind of you know fell on the floor and we examined it and and you said, "Oh yeah, that's that's I've had a lot of that." And um, but it, it's like, how does one navigate a path? And I, and I also really love the idea of of like here you are, you 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 acquire a property that um, has its own history before you arrive, and the artifacts from that history that you can observe are probably. Uh, not, as, not as soul building as what you have now but you see the potential, especially if you've been looking for a property for a long time suddenly you get to a place and it's like I can really see all the things happening so now you're on this property and the way that you got to where you are is through a rich history of, I'm going to make a guess of 200 different people each throwing their shoulder in in one way or another, most of the time for something mutually beneficial. Um, so they're enjoying the time that they spend throwing their shoulder in, and there is possibly something else that they get in return. But Ooh. I'm going to say that I, I thought that was poetry too. I, w- I want to come back to the community resilience in a moment, but I'm saying 200 people over the years. From the moment that you arrived, plus there's 200 people who came and went, and you have something rather magnificent now. Does that sound about right?
2: I suppose so. I was actually um, getting lost in thought thinking through what I know of the history of this land in particular. Here I am, 20 miles northeast of Seattle in Washington State, and how it's... um. This land, as far as I know, is traditional Snoqualmie tribal territory. And I acknowledge their their history of stewardship as well as their presence today. And that's been a lively conversation for us here at Hawthorne Farm. And then one neighbor says that this was pasture. One neighbor who had been here since the 60s, another neighbor who had been here in the 70s said it was a berry farm. It was lowland forest at one point we've got the enormous cedar stumps in the forest to prove it and it was pasture for a while and then this house that I live in was built in 1988 for a woman in a wheelchair so it's a nice wide doorway open house and um and I've been living here since 2003 and honestly Paul I pulled out some pictures from August of 2003 when I first moved here and wow, I should send you the before and after pictures because it's really quite different and I used to spend a lot of time just looking for, you know, clover leaves to eat or, or kind of trying to get something edible from my land when I first began. And now... Oh my gosh, we're like leaving green beans on all the neighbors' doorsteps. Uh there's just so much food to eat and we have six to ten people to feed off of the farm and we run a farm stand every week, you know, just so we can distribute the amazing abundance that we've got. I mean the like, yeah. It's it's really lovely to see what some time and attention can do. And it was Heartbreaking, sort of being a permaculture land communicator kind of person, walking around looking for a place to buy back in 2003, because every place just said, take care of me, like take care of me, (laughs) come here, like I need attention, and I walk around, I walk around and I hear that from the land. I've never Well, I've met very few places who actually were not starved for human attention. And I think that's, you know, really the beauty of permaculture and part of that conversation with the landscape, too, about, well, what, what's the whole picture in terms of the soil, the climate, the people who live here, the tools available to them, the labor available, the, you know, desires and physical abilities of the people here, how they're gonna bring animals into into the mix. It's so fun, and it can go so many different directions. But I really think, for me, the sweet kernel is to have humans relating well with each other and relating well with the landscape. Um, and so many people come to Hawthorne Farm and say, Oh, my gosh, this place is an awakening. And that's a little invisible to me because I'm around it all the time. And I know that I've had such a great privilege and being able to have the time and energy to develop this. But I say, and I know you're on board too, like living in a place you love should actually not be unusual. <laughs> I, I would actually rather that that be the norm for everybody. Um, so I feel really lucky. I feel like it's my duty to share whatever I've learned here in any way that can help anybody else. And I just love the the actual land where I live. And it gets richer and richer every year. So I'm having a blast, too. I don't know. that I hope that's coming through. Like, it is so engaging for me. And I was on a track when I left college. I was going to go get my Ph.D. And then I started farming instead. (laughs) Or I started teaching and doing wilderness skills instead. And now running a farm running this little diversified homestead. It's not really a farm because we're not selling bulk produce. Uh, but this question of how do we eat really well, maximizing the caloric gain from the sunlight that's hitting this piece of land, how do we do that and feed ourselves year-round really well? That's kind of that's just a fundamental human question throughout history. And I also remind people that when Daniel and I did our hand harvested food challenge in 2017, that was not unusual in the scope of human history. Like most, most of human history has been about the hand harvested food challenge. Um, just because we've had a few generations of grocery store convenience, um, yeah, she, you know. We can't forget that hand-harvested food has, has been the historical norm. So it's super fun. I'm having a blast. And, um, yeah, I don't know how useful all that is, but I would just really encourage everybody to go watch their landscape, do that observation piece, and be open to what comes up.
0: I think all the stuff you're talking about is, to me, of course, <clears throat> pure gold. And... And which kind of comes back to the whole thing where I'm kind of like, you, you have hired me for an hour of consulting and I don't believe there's anything that I have to say that could possibly be of value to you. I think that if you made your own podcast, that all of my podcast people would leave me to go listen to your podcast. <laughs> so I, I think I want to, I want to touch on another thing that you said just a, a, a few moments ago, like eight minutes ago or so, and that is that you had that person who kind of wanted to seal off their property and be there by themselves, and then have it. Now, I I kind of feel like, okay, you, Alexia, if you were like required by law or whatever, or required by something, and you're on that whole property all by yourself, and so then the only, you know, and, and now you uh, you're You have the ability to grow your own food and be self-sufficient. I would imagine that your soul would be like hovering at about 15% of what it is now. It's such a soul-building, soul-fulfilling experience to do this, to accomplish so much and then have the experience shared with, with all these lovely people it's it is a it is a massive positive to your life not just a small positive but a a massive positive am i am i close
2: yes it's like what makes life worth living so many people say oh wow your farm is so amazing thank you for sharing it you know they. i know this must be so much work but we just love to visit my daughter loves feeding the rabbits this is so great thank you thank you thank you the berries are amazing I say, well, yeah, good, because sharing it is three-quarters of the fun, <laughs> at least three-quarters of the fun here. So uh, that that does feel really important to me, and that that's my temperament. I mean, there are certainly times when I think I could just, Daniel and I could just live in a little hermit hut with my goats somewhere in Montana on a mountaintop and not have to deal with people again. Sometimes that does seem pretty appealing, I'll be honest. <laughs> and, uh, I do really enjoy the people. Like, that's, that's who I'm here to serve is, I mean, not just the human people, but, but definitely my community and definitely people who might not think the same way I do. I'm like, well, okay, you know, how can I get along with my neighbors? How can I be in a role that that serves my community well. And thanks to all the help I've gotten from so many people over the years, including you know you and all the great stuff in the permes zone, um, it's 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 working well enough to want to keep going, even after various trials and challenges, and I'm sure more to come. But it does feel uh, really lovely, especially as this pandemic has kind of cinched things down. I realized, oh my gosh, the subsistence farm is kind of where it's at. (laughs) That is one of the most stable forms. I mean, I did not grow up farming. If you had told me that I would have composting toilets, uh, when I was a kid, I would never have believed you. Hmm. And now it totally makes sense. And with this pandemic issue and, and unsteady supply chains and things. I'm like, wow, I am so grateful for those hazelnuts I've planted. I am so grateful for the garden soil I've cultivated. I'm so grateful to have a huge variety. I mean, yes, 50 plus species and varieties of plants growing here that I incorporate into our diets regularly. So that if, you know, the potatoes get blight and we don't have a great potato year, we've got the barley, we've got the corn, you know, we've got a whole bunch of several varieties of dried beans growing in different places. And we've got root vegetables here and those over there and different families of plants. And, you know, we know where the neighborhood apple, hood, apple trees are. So there's that sense of like, oh, we have a decent shot at surviving. Uh, and that, for whatever reason, really feels good to me.
0: Yeah. Um, I, I want to try and talk about something that's like, uh, and then suddenly the, you know, if there was a food scarcity thing, the extra food that you have would suddenly have a tremendous dollar value and that mm-hmm. would help to sustain what you're doing and even accelerate what you're doing. And so I, I kind of think about people who do have a bunch of land and then they do more of a lazy approach. They get a bunch of food to start growing on their land and it's kind of like they're, Plan B plot. They don't tend it at all. They don't really do anything with it. And then they, if anything goes wonky, it's Plan B. Sitting right there, a whole lot of food, ready, ready for them if they should need it.
2: Totally. Yep. I've got a great swath of Jerusalem artichokes and (laughs) kind of, you know, all the like. These are substantial calorie plants that don't need any work. And they're just going to be growing out there just in case because we might as well have calories here. And I'm I'm pretty proud. I checked in on one of my babies recently, which is a little walnut tree that I went and gorilla planted. You know, I planted 15 or so walnut seedlings, and one of them is now 10 feet tall. Um, I thought, oh, that's so great. You know, I just have to. Cause it, it took me, it was a fun 45 minutes of walk, taking a nice walk and sticking these seedlings in the ground wherever it looked like there's a little patch of soil where a walnut tree might, you know, be able to grow, uh, not like, not under power lines or, you know, not in somebody's mowed lawn. Mm-hmm. And now all of a sudden there's a walnut tree in my neighborhood and, wow, I'm going to do that with chestnuts next year. I'm just going <laughs> to wander around and plant these things because they might, they might not survive. Totally. You know, the same goes through the chestnuts since I planted 15 years ago. Who knows what what they'll do. But the odds of them being awesome calorie outputs in 200 years, it's a lot higher chances that they'll be there if I plant them than if I don't plant them. <laughs> so right. I just can go ahead and plant them.
1: <laughs> this
0: podcast is continued in part two. Don't forget... Go out to patreon.com slash paulwheaton and make a pledge for future artifacts.